0: Hello students, calm down, academaniacs. welcome anyone who might be auditing this class, welcome to detention. I am everyone's favorite co-host, the Caleb G., but tonight I am Professor Crunch, and that means it is my job to take care of you hooligans that are stuck here after hours in the RPG Academy. Uh, Before we get started, I do want to remind everyone that Detention is brought to you by BattleBards.com. BattleBards is fantastic game audio. I use it for every episode of Rot Iron here on the RPG Academy podcast, and we do still have those exclusive coupon codes going, so if you are picking up the $10 or $25 credit package, enter code AHOY and the number 1 to get a free track from their new Pirates-themed albums. Uh, with the $50 or $100 credit package, Ahoy number two gets you five free t- tracks. And uh, if you pick up the $150 or $300 credit package, Ahoy number three gets you 16 free tracks. They have recently refreshed a bunch of their other albums, added some new tracks in there, and the uh, sound mixer feature is now live and ready to play with. Believe me, Battle Bards is an awesome, awesome tool to use in your GM toolbox. Uh, but we are going to be here tonight in detention with two very familiar voices. Uh, first and foremost, someone who is always here in trouble with me, Scott.
1: Howdy all you kids out there in Radio Land.
0: And to help us out tonight, one of my favorite voices from the RPG Academy Network, Quinn Wilson. Hello. And uh, let's kick things off tonight with our first segment here in detention, Extracurricular. What have we been up to? Gentlemen, what's going on outside of these Academy hallowed walls?
1: I've I've recently been uh, very tertiarily involved by an argument online as to how you pronounce our hashtag.
2: Oh, as prompted by Mundangerous or Shane of the Total Party Thrill podcast? I I believe I saw him prompt that one. Yes,
1: Mundangerous. That's M-U-N, dangerous. That jerk. Yes, he um, he uh, dared call into question Professor Crunch's pronunciation. Because, uh, as as illustrated at the beginning of this episodes, Academaniacs is based on academics, right? Versus... Um, Academaniacs Which would be based on academy Right? There's a a subtle Difference in that pronunciation that is important And uh, neither is correct It turns out, no, I'm just
0: (laughs) You know, if anyone is just going to sit here And find the correct thing Mm. that we've been Doing wrong the whole time, I do expect (laughs) it to be You, Scott Uh, But I don't think there's another way to pronounce it I mean, it's either Academaniacs or
2: Yeah, it would be Academaniacs Academaniacs,
0: Academaniacs. Academaniacs. right Mm -hmm. And that one doesn't fit the cadence right of how I, I want to talk so
2: i just play the animaniacs theme song you, you,
0: you don't want to do Acad-a-maniacs. yeah exactly yeah. yeah i mean we made up a word we can make a make up how it sounds right actalamanics sure all right that works too
2: flumpus that word is now pronounced <laughs> flumpus
0: Perfect. You know what? We don't need to confuse Michael anymore with his Kentucky drawl. <laughs> it's already going to be bad enough. So I'm, I'm saying Academaniacs. I'm sticking with Academaniacs. Come at me, bro. Pro
2: tip, saying words differently, taking different pronunciations, not the end of the world.
1: <laughs> and uh, one of the best things is as a native speaker of your, uh, your, your home tongue, you uh own the language and the things you say as long as they're understood by those you're speaking to are now new canon in the language right this is the way they make dictionaries is by asking people native speakers what those words mean exactly
2: the idea of there being a platonic ideal of language is preposterous
1: it's it's a living living thing
0: man i'm i'm forgetting yep. here that i'm sitting in detention with two incredibly smart people and I'm just over here kind of really tired and do- doofy, doofy tonight. So this is going to be a great show. That's, is that name on <laughs> one of the seven doors? Don't do- doofy? <laughs> yes, with all what? the stuttering that I may or may not edit oh, out. Don't de doofy. Speech
1: impediments are serious business, and we shall not make fun of them. However, we'll make fun of you because you don't
0: have to. That's very true. I'm just tired, and uh, I have bad microphone habits when I'm recording. So what else has been going on other than... Uh, Calling out an internet argument that has no bearing on reality, Scott. Uh, I know you took a trip recently.
1: Oh, I I did. I, I went back home um, uh, during our last uh, detention. I, I complained that that weddings are foolhardy shams for for those who wear their hearts on their sleeves and and believe in um, you know crazy mixed up things. And and of course after seeing my Sister dressed up all cute, and my nephew in a little bow tie and suspenders. Uh, it melted my cold, dead heart, and now I think that weddings are kind of adorable and that everyone should have one, at least one, if not a couple, right? You, I mean, the more the merrier, right? So, that's how that went.
0: Are, are these weddings happening simultaneously, or is there also a, uh, a legal ending of the relationship between the weddings? Well, uh, I am from Utah, so, you know. So it doesn't matter, whichever one you want C- to do.
1: Consenting adults, I I think, uh, I I look forward to 2048, when the Supreme Court is debating uh, the existing marital law at that time, which uh, allows eight or fewer consenting adults to marry, when the entire city of, you know, East New Brunswick, New Jersey wants to marry for tax reasons. And they're extremely concerned about grandfathering in children once they turn 18, right? Or um, people who move into the city who are not originally able to consent, right? And uh, so they're, they're clamoring with those issues. I look forward to those discussions. So
0: then moving to a certain city now has also the consideration of what citywide relationship you are joining by virtue of movement.
1: Exactly. Mm. It's, 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 it's
0: an open borders relationship. Yeah. You know what? I, I think in all the... Uh, dystopian futures that we have explored we have yet to explore the concept of a citywide relationship well then you sir have never been to utah i have been to utah (laughs) once when i was a teenager well then technically now we're related oh cool um does it count if when i was in utah that's when i was a dumb teenager and i was really religious even more so okay all right how about you quinn how's life
2: Oh boy, Uh, it's going pretty well. I got a lot on my plate right now specifically, uh, which is why certain people might have noticed that the second episode of our Rizzo's Quest off-season episodes of Swallows of the South uh, are late, super busy, haven't had time to quite wrap up the editing on that one, and I'm a bad, bad person for that.
0: It's okay, Quinn. We forgive you because you're a gorgeous man. Oh, thank you. He said but, making a, um, a visual reference on this audio podcast. Oh.
2: Yes, I got all bashful, but I am uh, looking at two exams this week. And I'm one of those people who, when I'm looking at exams in courseworks, and they're on the, the same day, I always super over prepare for the, my first exam. I assume that it will be the most difficult, challenging, trying examination I've taken in my entire life. And then ease back up from there. So I've been grinding on that pretty hard while still trying to find time to actually study for the GRE, which I've gotten really lax about. But in terms of fun stuff, I did go out and I did karaoke for the first time with my partner and the guys from System Mastery and some of their Mm. friends. So that was a lot of fun. Now,
0: the only reference of karaoke I have... Is movies and sitcoms so does it live up to the hype
2: it depends on what you mean (laughs) by the hype Uh, is it spending a lot of time in a crowded bar where you can't really hear the conversations of the people immediately proximal to you well most of the bar is kind of singing along to whatever karaoke song happens to be going on then yes If you expect glitz and glamour and anything of that sort, then at least in San Diego's The Lamplighter Bar, you are going to be sorely mistaken.
0: Well, that's fair. I think that's all right. Uh, Karaoke is something I will never do. So you've got one up on me, Quinn. Strong words from a weak man. (laughs) Also true, Scott. I bet
1: bet we could get you to... I, I bet if we make a Kickstarter goal friends, donators at home, I bet if we make a Kickstarter goal uh, to get you to do karaoke on a Twitch stream live for a studio audience and then uh, put it up on YouTube afterward, we could generate a lot of money.
0: You know, I would not be opposed to that.
1: Okay, good, good. Uh, of course, it has to be in uh, costume.
0: Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. We might have to full ra- LARP. We might have to raise that milestone goal a little bit then. Unlikely story. I, I have a strict hard and fast rule in my life. I will wear costumes, but they have to be regular clothing. (laughs) So technically you're Uh, not wearing costumes. No, I I will wear a costume. Okay, here's a great example. Uh, Most recent Ghostbusters movie, Kevin. I will wear Kevin's clothing. That's a costume because I'll go as Kevin. But I'm still wearing regular clothes.
2: I mean, that's no fun at all. I say that as someone for whom Halloween is absolutely
0: my favorite holiday. Halloween is the best time of year. I absolutely agree with you. I uh, just had bad experiences with cosplay in my youth.
2: Oh, so did I. Want to hear a fun story about what I dressed up for as Halloween in the 8th grade?
0: Please share, um, Quinn. Please. Yeah,
2: I am blushing something fierce right now. Uh, mind you, when I was 13 in the 8th grade, I was... a uh, I had long, bad hair, pretty, pretty pudgy overweight, and I decided that I would dress myself up as Sasuke from Naruto with, like, the half-curse mark thing going on, so I had half of my body covered in black spots, and it was the absolute goddamn worst.
0: (laughs) Uh, I think I can trump that. Uh, probably early 20s. We attended an anime convention in Columbus, Ohio, which had a cosplay contest as one of the featured events. We handmade costumes from Final Fantasy IX. And then we spent the entire day lugging around these costumes. Uh, I was... um, What's-his-face with the monkey tail? Zidane? That one, yeah. So I I was in a Zidane costume with a monkey tail. Uh, Zidane wears, what, a, a tank top and a weird half-vest thingy?
2: Oh, yeah, I wasn't even sure if he wore a tank top. I thought he just wore, like, an open vest and some, like, baggy pants.
0: Uh, I did not—regardless, r- I did not have an open vest because, uh, one, self-conscious— uh, two, out in public all day. And three, a little bit chubby. You know, I don't have, the, oh, yeah. I don't have those muscles that I want.
2: No, that's definitely one of those costumes that... <laughs> you
0: wear a tank top or you have abs. And <laughs> I have no abs. There are no abs in my household. Uh, so yeah, we, we handmade all these costumes. We spent months and months doing it. I made a giant goddamn... Double-ended weapon that I had to lug around all day. Uh, we actually went to the cosplay contest, which is like a, a parade of cosplayers, and you'd go up on stage, and bl- everyone would vote for you and bullshit like that. We basically wasted the entire day waiting in line because Oof. we had to meet at some time in the morning. They had to sign everyone numbers, and then you had to go to a certain point to check in, buy your number, and then you'd be in the back area of the conference center. Uh, It ended up taking all day because they were so badly organized. They couldn't check everyone in. And then we had to basically just go stand in line right away. Uh, So I spent all day in this horrible, horrible, uncomfortable costume being very, very self-conscious. And uh, yeah, no no costumes for Professor Crunch here unless it's like a T-shirt and jeans. So Scott Pilgrim, yep, right there. Only I'm not going to shave, so I'll be Scott Pilgrim with a beard. (laughs) That's that's my rule. I'm sticking to it.
2: Won't you even go for, like, Stephen Stills then?
0: Oh, yes. I could definitely rock Stephen Stills because he wore, what, jeans and a a plaid cowboy shirt? Yeah. I'm pretty sure I have that exact shirt in my closet anyway. Boom. Problem solved. Hey, I'm Stephen Stills. Thanks, guys. Who was way better in the comic books than the movies, by the way, I really like oh yeah, I really like Stephen in the comic books uh, but anyway, yes, um, so amidst all that rambling, uh, we're still in extracurricular, I guess what have I been doing um, I've been working a hell of a lot, um, I think I'm getting sick because I think I'm losing my voice, and uh, I watched what did I watch uh, the increasingly poor decisions of Todd Margaret
2: that show is Wonderful.
0: They just put the third season on Netflix, right? Uh, I I binged the entire thing, start to finish, all three seasons. Man, I loved the first two because they were just so awkward and terrible, but really, really funny. And then the third season, which just spins everything, kicks it on its ass and does everything kind of backwards, even better.
2: I'm not sure that I saw the third season. How what's like their weird framing device for the third season?
0: The framing device is a cult leader reading from a book.
2: Oh my god, I haven't seen this. I need to find the time to watch this.
0: Quinn. Because
2: I love the first two seasons so much.
0: Quinn, what are you doing? Stop educating yourself and being a better human being. Go watch television. Oh boy. Okay, so you know how um So the first two seasons use one of my favorite storytelling tropes where you show that one scene at the end and everything is backwards leading up to it, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely love that. It's it's one of my favorite, favorite parts of storytelling. Uh, Third season starts with, and it's only six episodes, just like the other ones, uh, starts with a cult reading out of a sacred book. And it's really, really subtle. Everything they're talking about, of course, is part of the episode. And um, I cannot say anything about it, because to give it away is an absolute sin against the beauty of this program. Uh, This third season undoes everything, but also does it again.
2: Oh boy, okay.
0: You need to let me know as soon as you watch it, Quinn. I absolutely it is... will.
2: <laughs> I absolutely will.
0: It is so good. Alrighty, well, uh, that's a that, that's a great teaser for you folks out there in uh, in radio land. Go go watch the increasingly increasingly incredible,
2: increasingly increasingly
0: poor decisions of, of Todd Margaret. Um, it, it is it is it's some of the the best comedy ever. Uh, David Cross created it, starred in it. Will Arnett's in it. So many so many hilarious people so many great scenes it's that really very awkward uh very uncomfortable type of comedy uh it's definitely not for everyone parts of it are are pretty gross and disgusting but it is very well made it's an outstanding show there's only 18 episodes they're each 22 minutes long go knock it out in a weekend you got nothing else to do Mm mm-hmm yep so with that said let's move on to our second segment here in detention used books where we talk about old campaigns or game ideas that may not have uh, wrapped up the way we wanted to just to discuss them have a bit of therapy about them and share some ideas uh it has been a little while since i have gotten to share so i'm going to take the stage here tonight um I did a homebrew campaign for some friends. We were trying to get into play-by-post because we had been gaming together re- very regularly, but then life just got in the way so we couldn't meet like we used to. So we said, hey, let's run a play-by-post. This was before Gamers Plane, which is one of the best places to do play by post, in my opinion. They're also network members, so I'm biased, but I'm right. So, we had this set up on just a, a side forum somewhere. Um, of course, the campaign didn't even get off the ground, but I did create what I thought was a pretty fun little homebrew setting. Um, basically, I put a city on top of a tree, and I said that the entire world had been destroyed by some sort of massive war. And essentially what had happened is the sides of the war had dropped their ultimate weapons. And their ultimate weapons were summoning the elemental forces of arcane magic, divine magic, and primal magic. So this was not 4th edition, but it was very heavily inspired by that uh, 4th edition triumvirate concept. So basically, the world was a wasteland by these untamed, raw forces of power just ripping through creation. And there was one city left untouched. It was called Sanctuary, and it was on top of a giant tree. And essentially, that was it. I I made a little map of some city districts, but I, I didn't strictly outline what they were. I let the players throw in some details. And um, it ended up being pretty cool because the players really diversified themselves. Uh, One of the girls, she decided she was this very wealthy, very proper aristocrat, but she was kind of slumming around with the other adventurers. Um, One of the other guys was her bodyguard. Uh, Another one was a... Merchant of some sort who had very secret magic powers because, of course, uh, since magic had done so much damage, they were trying to limit it as much as possible here in Sanctuary. And we essentially created this little arena to play around in and figure out how did people get up there? How did people leave? Where did resources come from? And we started working within this framework Uh, But unfortunately, it never got past the quote unquote session zero of creating all of it. Uh, But it's still an interesting concept to me because especially now that I've been thinking more about what it means to create a world and environment and resource management and an allocation of how people survive and why they do what they do, a very limited structure, a very limited city, seems really, really appealing to me.
2: Yeah, I've got a bunch of games like that, you know, that I've seedlings for, died in their infancy, and I also deeply love world and culture building, so I feel your pain on this one
0: a lot. (laughs) Well, I think that's one of the things I really liked so much about uh, creating wrought iron for our actual play, because we spent so long creating the world and looking at the culture and really defining the crunchy bits that made me really happy. And I really liked how we were able to do that. Um, so, so going backwards to the sanctuary idea, I think that's what I enjoyed the most out of it. Just figuring out the weird little things about how the city worked and why it did what it did. Unfortunately, we never got to play in it. Um, I think we kind of started one little session, because I remember them uh, running off to fight giant mutated wasps that may have been part monkey. I don't know. Uh, This was in the 3-5 era, and I flipped through the monster manual until I found a picture I liked, (laughs) and I used it.
2: You know, like you do.
0: The, yeah, th- those have ended in some of
1: the worst, most one-sided, unfun combats I've ever run. Like, this looks like it'll be tons of fun. Oh, I didn't realize it was CR6. Well, there's already five of them. Good luck.
0: <laughs> or that's where you just start flubbing all the numbers.
1: Yes, yes, yes. See, I don't know.
2: my method is, okay, let's build some balanced encounters. Let's look at all this, like, statistical crunch. And then... I rip away all the fluff, and then I yeah. put my own Rescan dressing it. on whatever it happens to be,
1: Yeah, almost I, uh, universally. I was, I was planning an underwater combat um, this last weekend, and uh, it did not go amazingly. And the reason I realized it did not is, uh, at least partially, because I limited myself to the uh, underwater creatures. Why did I do that? Any stat block can be given a swim speed. They could have been fighting goblins. I don't care, right? You're you just like, no, oh, they're weird things with tails, and it's done. You're, yep. you're done.
0: Oh, they're really fast turtles, and they have claws. It's it's over. I think that's one of the lessons that took me the longest to learn as a GM. I was so shackled to the concept of finding the thing that is the right CR for a balanced encounter and then trying to justify how to get it into the encounter. I, I very much remember older campaigns where i would find okay what's the right cr for this fight two skeletal minotaurs well shit okay why are there skeletal minotaurs in the middle of the town uh <laughs> here we go <laughs> and i would try mm-hmm. to weasel them in there somehow
2: mm-hmm. and that can be a really fun exercise in encounter design and in world building true but also probably not the way you want to approach
0: most of your sessions no not at all um it it is it is a fun challenge to try to figure out what justification in the story gets them there right Mm -hmm. and it's kind of one of those mad libs mad lib games
1: yeah you you can use it as inspiration right where where the the fewer keys the piano has the more music you can create right Mm -hmm. the the more your selection of keys becomes the art Or you can uh, use it as a quick excuse to have a really dull combat like I did last weekend.
0: (laughs) But I think more so what I've been doing is honestly just saying, okay, what are we fighting? And what's about the right AC? What's about the right attack bonus? What's about the right damage? What kind of flavor do I want? I need tentacles. I need... Something that's flying. Mm-hmm. I need something that stalks in the darkness. Okay, let's find a stat block that you, works. You need something that can
1: live in a biome that is entirely one city on top of one giant tree. Yep. And successfully reproduce there, breed, die, live on, like, have something to eat, like natural predators and prey. That's that's not an yeah. So you, you have, uh, you know, things that brachiate branch to branch and you have things that fly and you have things that crawl along the branches and suddenly there are highways and, and uh, yeah.
0: Can be and right. what's really interesting. If you're taking this exercise to its full extent, if, if you're breaking down then what types of things live in this very isolated environment, then that tells you more about the world. Cause if I say, okay, yeah. this weird monster has to live here. What does he eat? Okay. So now I know it's food source. Uh, well, how does that impact the actual people that live in here? Okay, so maybe they farm this thing or maybe it's a, a a rare resource that someone smuggled in. Okay, well, now that tells me the next step that there's this smuggling ring and that's part of the world now. So uh, I, I owe this all to J.M. Perkins uh, in our most recent interview uh, for his Kickstarter for Salt and the Wounds or Salt and Wounds. Um, he was talking about how Uh, problems become solutions become problems in world building. And that's how kind of he Mm -hmm. approaches it. He figures out a thing, how to solve it, and then sees what that impacts next, lets that become a new problem, figures out a new solution, and let...
1: You bring in the lions to kill the stray dogs, and then you have to bring in, you know, some diseases to kill Mm -hmm. the lions, Mm -hmm. and then you have to bring in virologists to cure the lion disease that it's jumped to humans
0: obviously it's it's where lions right mm. i mean that's where my mind goes I like <laughs> uh,
1: obviously i uh, so um you know back, back to your topic of, of of the campaign that you know it's it's interesting to me that, that you have these two examples right you have rod iron where our session 0 was wildly successful i was there i remember and you have uh this treetop game where session 0 was all you got and i'm guessing because session zero was long and maybe unrewarding for some players. Was that a significant part? Do you think of why the the game does? Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Um, I, these, these people that I are still very good friends. I, I still love gaming with them when we have the time. Uh, but games with them are much more visceral. Let's be in the moment. Let's mm. have an encounter. Let's have a role play. Let's do something. Do, do, do what's in the moment. Uh, Planning gets boring for them. Well, I I take that back. They're really excited about planning, but if it doesn't immediately go into the the game session, then there's a little bit of a disconnect, and that's when things fall apart.
1: I feel that. So can we draw a lesson from this? Do do we think it's possible to take... um you know, session zero, which which is an optional step, but, but you know, the, I, th- I think the purpose is to allow a lot of ownership and, and a lot of generation and a lot of depth into the setting before we start, right? And a lot of involvement of our characters with that setting. Can we take that and make it an, an online, you know, session zero was always kind of thing, where, where players at any time are enabled and empowered to inject lore into the setting, to inject uh, associations with their characters to, to add a bunch of depth just as you go, so that uh, when you first sit down at the table, you can say roll initiative, maybe without even necessarily knowing what classes everybody is or who everyone's name is, and try and establish that as you go, right? So the, the combat's done, the, apparently we're fighting goblins because somebody established that, and so we wipe them out, and, and then we, we uh, you know, James, are you okay? All my character's name's James, right? Or, I mean, maybe that's an extreme, but is it possible to bring in more of the session zero aspects, sessions to session, beginning, end, as you go rather than jamming them all at the front so everyone who wants a big mushy combat's just board.
2: That sounds a lot to me like the way that Dungeon World handles session-to-session gameplay.
1: So do, do please elaborate. I have a very biased experience of Dungeon World.
0: Yes, we share that biased experience.
2: You're not supposed to come into Dungeon World with a whole bunch of plans. You need like a loose framework or an idea. You do your character generation, and through character generation, you ask a bunch of questions about each other and about the world, and basically through there... The GM advice presented within the book puts the onus on the GM to ask a lot of questions of the players at any given juncture, and those can be used to then further flesh out and expand the world as opposed to confining the role of world builder or sort of campaign architect solely on the arms of the
0: GM. And actually, in my experience, anyway, I, I may be wrong, but all of the different games that are powered by Apocalypse encourage that type of gameplay and world building. Uh, a lot mm-hmm. of the playbooks that I have read start with uh, make a decision about your relationship with this other character. Answer this yep. question about the city, the environment, this person. You you mm-hmm. saved someone. Who was it? What happened? You are embarrassed uh, and don't want to talk about this thing that happened with someone else. What was that? And some of the, the play sets do have a mechanical component of that. Um, I'm thinking specifically of Monster Hearts right now. Uh, as you are creating these relationships between the other characters, that changes your stats and how you interact mechanically with one specific character versus another.
2: Yeah. And masks does a similar thing.
0: So, so I think we can say that um, that concept. If we translate that to world building, then by baking that into the pre-game experience, by getting people to ask questions, by getting people to answer questions and derive facts and details from what they tell you, you're getting their interest. You're getting them involved. And that can help transition players who might not be as excited to be invested in world building and just want encounters to happen, the game itself to happen. That might get them involved earlier and bide their interest before we get to rolling dice.
2: Yeah, and then I would say even add on top of that, after you do that, establish that this is not the end of these questions this is not the end of your ability to introduce facts mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um i think that that's an important thing where if you don't do that people might see this sort of clear delineation between this sort of question heavy session zero and standard play
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, yeah um, absolutely if, if, if it's an everyday kind of thing then uh, yeah yeah, yeah, you,
0: yeah you could almost start every session with a couple questions.
1: Mm-hmm. It's, it's a, uh, yeah. And, and then you set the cultural, the, the culture and the tone of the game, right? Exactly.
0: And you know what? I, I just had a little bit of a brainstorm here. Um, we've talked about how with a role-playing game, sometimes it's hard to remember everything that happens, right? Um, if you're watching a serialized television show, Let's take Supernatural because I think it's the best example of this. Most episodes start with a last time on, but the moments in that last time on could be from seasons and seasons ago, right? They could show details, characters, events from season two or three, and we're in season 11 because now the same monster is there or a random character has Mm -hmm. popped up. As right. viewers, we know, okay, this is cueing me for the episode. This is preparing me. It's like... They're reminding me of the things that will be relevant this Exactly. Episode. It's like the overture in a musical. You pick up the musical themes for the different characters and scenes, right? So, so you're all queued mm-hmm. up. In a role-playing game, if I sit down and say, hey, guys, remember three games ago when you fought a vampire? That's important. And then we get into the game, it's harder to... <laughs> Have that, oh, I just remembered it. I should pay attention now. It's almost like I'm telling you there's going to be vampires. But Mm -hmm. what if instead of saying, hey, there's going to be vampires, I just ask, ask questions about undead or funeral rituals or what a certain culture means when they say heaven and hell? Or what a certain city's view is of the afterlife.
1: So, so, so to prep everyone for the tone, we're just gonna like the, the, we know that this this uh, this day, this session, is gonna involve death or or uh, light magic or this particular cult that we're going to visit, and so we establish facts around that cult, and that way everyone remembers it and and cues up for it and is in the same mood when we start like oh it turns out that cult uh you know is superstitious about uh copper coins they they uh you know something And then something. as
0: a GM it's my responsibility to take those answers that my players give me and work those into my plans for the session if someone makes up oh the cult is superstitious about copper coins but I never bring that up then I've I failed that part of the game I've not weaved it together um but if my players make up superstition about copper coins uh no one says goodbye at a funeral because they believe the afterlife is going to be there right I-, I need to bring those elements into the game even if briefly to reward the players for making it up and to make the world feel a little bit more cohesive
1: mm-hmm. I-, I like that also because it it um it contributes to something that that uh, james damato would advocate for right of of having warm-ups before the game that you wouldn't think you'd need to warm up. It sounds sort of silly, but uh, getting everyone to be able to be in character or queued up for the session. You're
2: right there. Oh, yeah. I always, always, always do warm-ups before games. Really? Yep. What What do you do? It depends. Um, for home games, mm-hmm. I often do the questions. I've seen, like, a, we do a lot of different questions. It depends on who's running, but we tend to ask questions... Um, in a lot of the earlier episodes of One Shot, James would ask specific questions about what's the, like, worst thing your character's ever done, or what's something that your character... So we used a lot of those kinds of techniques. And when we're recording Swallows, before we sit down to record any session, the first thing we do to get everybody warmed up, primed up, and in character is we record Lunch at Madam Phase.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Excellent. And since Lunch at Madame Faye's is usually very ridiculous and funny, it lets you get into character, shake out some of the nervousness of role-playing by just allowing yourself to be silly and goofy, which then primes the pump for all those feels and emotions that you put us through, Quinn. Exactly. Jerk.
2: I can't help it
0: you could help it it's an impulse <laughs> you and jim McClure.
2: i really need to sit down and talk to that guy well,
0: hey a catacon november 11th 12th and 13th in dayton ohio
2: i know come
0: one come all if you haven't bought a ticket yet www.vacadacon.com through ventbrite we're what 6 weeks away 5 six weeks
2: away yeah Jesus i bought my Christ. air i bought my my plane tickets today really yep
0: fun oh man i am seriously looking forward to hanging out with you man i think it'll be great
2: <laughs> it's gonna be so much fun
0: it's so weird we're always talking for the network we have these shows together but just knowing that we'll be in the same building for three and a half four days
2: yeah yeah no i know
0: uh, i'm looking forward to it. it's gonna, gonna be me too
2: it's gonna be so much fun
0: uh Already,
1: righty. So uh, any of you listeners out there who want to uh, be in the presence of the, uh, the Lord Professor Crunch himself, come on down.
0: It'll be the best. Well, you'll be there too, Scott.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Anybody want to get awkward photos that make you look better because you're standing next to me? Come on up.
0: I think our goal is to recreate the uh, faculty photo we took last year. But anyway, we are uh, off the rails here on a tangent. Let's try to bring it back around and move on to our final segment here of detention class review. We are working through the core classes in Dungeons and Dragons 5th Edition. Tonight we are going to do one that I think is going to be subject to some controversy. We are talking about the sorcerer. Bum Ooh, bum bum. So, uh, Sorcerer, I'm just going to say it off, off right off the rip here. 5th edition Sorcerer, don't like it. One of my least favorite classes of 5th edition.
1: But it's at least a lot better
0: than 4th edition Sorcerer and 3.5 Sorcerer. Well, ho- hold on there. 4th edition Sorcerer, not a fan of. 3.5, loved it to death. What? Pathfinder, loved it to death. Once we jump to 4 and 5, I, I have ceased... Uh, being a Sorcerer fan.
1: So, so uh, I mean, what what causes you to have this wrong opinion, Caleb?
0: Whoa! Um, is,
1: is this about your parents? We're, this is a safe place, you can tell us. <laughs> All right,
0: so...
2: I mean, we're talking about sorcery, so it might
1: be. Oh, oh yeah, yep, yep. You, you get that from the line, right? It's, Lineage it's does
0: matter. Lineage does matter. Uh, so I, I think it's because of my fondness for the crunchy mechanics behind everything in 3.5 the sorcerer was a very focused arcane spellcaster you chose a specific list of spells that you knew you did not have the unlimited knowledge that a wizard has and you had more spells per day than a wizard so you knew a few things and you could use them a whole bunch i'm lazy so i like not having to deal with a huge spell book as a sorcerer, I know these 10 spells. Done. Let's go. I'm going to cast them all day long. And I liked the flavor because in the 3.5 era, it was just something in your history gave you the arcane touch. Maybe there's a dragon in your family. Maybe it's an angel. Maybe it's a demon. Blah, 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 blah. Who cares? Who knows? Make it up. Go. And that was it. I mean, there were no other class features. You, just, you, had, a, you had a few spells. You had a lot of spell slots. And I think you had some bonus feats for metamagic or whatever, but that's so, nothing.
1: Given that you've, you've uh, you know, from, from a 50-yard from a view, from a mile-high view, you've described the 5th edition Sorcerer, how do you feel like it doesn't add up to the description you've just given the uh, at-home audience? So you have the same number of spell slots as a wizard. Except that you have sorcery points that you can convert into more spells. And now
0: you have this much more confusing mechanic to fuck around with your spells. It, it feels to me like it is a more complicated way to do something that has already been very simply and beautifully defined.
1: You know, I, I I, think I would disagree that that I always thought it was a, an enormous waste to cast, like, waste a fourth level slot on a second level spell just because I wanted it silenced, right? Quickened, whatever. Uh, maximize something right you uh, two to three slots the uh sorcery point spending for that is a much more elegant system i feel and i love that they've also allowed the 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 two resources that you have to manage to really have a translation between the two i think that was an uh, elegant solution
2: i am inclined to agree i actually like the economy that you have between sorcery points and spell slots Especially because I'm of the opinion that if you're playing D&D, if you want to talk about the mechanics, it's super-duper-duper important that you recognize that it is an elaborate system of resource management. And the particular resource management gimmick which they introduced for the Sorcerer class allows for, I think, a pretty interesting and dynamic back-and-forth and and interchange in 5th edition, as opposed to being kind of flat or a lot like you i just have a lot like with just having a bunch of spell slots
0: all right that's that's fair that's two very fair opinions um i don't disagree with you now that you guys are saying it and explaining it mostly because i know you're both way smarter than me
1: only fifty percent true on Quinn's side. Um <laughs> No comment. But that said, what what did we think about the uh, fluff of the Sorcerer? One thing I've I've never liked about the fluff is was the, the close tie to dragons. I, I always thought, you know, I guess they call the game Dungeons and Dragons, but that was still never something that really resonated with me. Yeah.
2: You before we recorded, I said that my problem with sorcerers is that everybody always plays the wrong sorcerer. Because Dragon Lineage Sorcerers are optimal, but also they're boring trash and I hate them.
0: (laughs) Please elaborate, sir.
2: So they're optimal because they have some features like um, enhancing certain types of spells based on elemental affinities. They have that bonus AC, which is super helpful for uh, D6 hit die caster, that type of thing.
1: I'm really glad you haven't mentioned the breath weapon because that's not helpful for a caster. That means you have to be close to people.
2: Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. The whole, like, tie into to dragons thing, for me personally, dragons have just never really done anything for me. And then the draconic lineage starts pulling up all of these immediate anxieties about how your PC is going to justify his or her... Draconic lineage, which can be overwhelming or frustrating or just
0: cringeworthy, all all the above.
2: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. You're not wrong. You're not wrong.
2: And so it can be a class for like that particular thing. In certain respects, sets me off like anybody coming to the table playing like a Drow Ranger. It's just like, (laughs) okay, hold on, we need to talk about this character. Um, I need to make sure that this is gonna be fine.
1: Yeah, are you okay with people attacking you on sight? Because we're real racist here in the Forgotten Realms and we kill you on sight. Oh boy,
2: that's one thing and that's something that I like definitely have talks about at the table and we kind of like decide on amount of tension that is felt there.
1: Mm, that's that's a good thing to openly discuss beforehand so everyone's right on the same page. Yep, session 0.
2: Mhm.
1: Like are are you are, are you okay only being able to travel in these realms because you're merely spat upon? but existing is not specifically illegal for you there.
2: Right. So, draconic sorcerers drudge up a lot of that for me, where it feels like there's potential for it to be very special snowflake. And I I run and I play Exalted, where every character is a super special snowflake, specifically chosen by the god. You're like one of 300 people, so that's not necessarily a problem but it's the melee behind it dragons don't do a lot for me and then the mechanics it's like oh so you mean that this is basically mechanically optimal because i'm more consistently defensible and i'm really able to easily carve and define a strong niche in combat and then conversely the wild magic sorcerer is just so much fun you're a human slot machine and yeah, I love I've, it. I've,
1: I've, I've never had uh, another one of those as a player uh, and not had that be amazing. I mean, flumps everywhere, right? Fireball detonated and we're all like level one, like two characters died. It was hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Right. Riot. It really, it, c- it can be a lot of fun.
2: So I've always loved the idea of the wild magic sorcerer. It really speaks to me. Um, there's a lot about like the wild and the fey, fairy, like chaos stuff that I love
1: yeah, ma- magic in in D D&D, anD D traditional D anD has always been so predictable, so like commodified. In fact, so like post industrial revolution, right? Where right, you get the same result every time mm-hmm. you do a thing, which seems so antithetical to the the mysteries and and enigmas that are the magical realms. Right. So I'm glad they've made uh, a a a ca- a class where uh, casting the same spell twice can give you different results.
2: Yep. So I love the kind of chaotic element. To me, it feels very distinct from all of the other classes that you might play the Wild Magic Sorcerer does. It doesn't feel like I'm just playing another caster. It doesn't feel like if I wanted to go for a similar feel, but maybe I like some class features or some spell options better. I could just play a wizard or a bard. It feels like I know exactly what I'm going in for here. It's super flavorful and I love it that's not to say that you can't come up with your own garbage special snowflake story for how you were touched by chaos and all of that business so i'm not gonna say that that is a problem specific to any particular class just that the dragon sorcerer uh hits red flags for me there
1: so uh then the follow-up question, Quinn, is is uh, if if you'd had a voice in in putting together the book and you could axe the dragon sorcerer archetype subtype and replace that subclass with with something else, what would you have proposed? Anything leap out at you that, that that's maybe missing or could uh, augment the sorcerer?
2: So they actually did the in one of the earlier unearthed arcana, they did like a storm sorcerer archetype, and I kind of like that. Um. Not necessarily the specifics, but I think that if you wanted to tap into what it means to be a sorcerer, I like the idea of kind of like teeming, raw, somewhat chaotic power. So not necessarily Storm, but if you were to bring in a lot of heavy elemental aspects without also needing to tie those up in draconic lore, Mm -hmm. I think that that leaves things feeling a lot more teeming and lively in my opinion
1: like the the division between would be that the druids are for the wilds but the wilds of living things and the the storm sorcerer if you will would be for the wilds of the natural environment earthquakes and hurricanes and tsunamis the kind of things exactly that, that probably druids would fight against right torrential fire and things
2: exactly they represent the untamed forces of nature
1: that which that which uh is is uh more truly neutral than the druid because they they could give a crap about life. Right. Steamroll right over it. I like that. That's that's an interesting view.
0: Very interesting concepts here. Um see, I always liked the idea of the sorcerer just because I like being able to sling around a lot of magic. And I, I think the sorcerer that I grew up with was just that. It was a machine gun of spells and you picked a couple things you were good at. You could customize it. You could get really creative and just know a bunch of weird random utility spells. There are 1,001
1: uses for Arcane Lock. Never (laughs) underestimate that.
0: Or you could go the other way and just be a, a, a devastating character and just know all the crazy, powerful evocation spells. Or you could try to balance it and figure out how to have a couple good offense spells, a couple good defense spells, some utility spells. And then you were dealing with that weird resource management of, I only know six spells of this level. How do I want to pick it? How do I want to define my character here? So yeah. I always thought that was enjoyable. Um, when we got into 4th and 5th edition, and because both 4th and 5th edition gave us the Dracanok lineage and the Wild Mage lineage they, they were very clear in that this is how a sorcerer works um, I, I don't think anyone will gasp when I say this but I'm not fond of the wild mages in a game because of how unpredictable they are from a storytelling standpoint I think it's awesome you know that concept is is brilliant uh, from a GM and I want to keep the story moving, My roots are still anchored in that hole. let's keep the plot moving forward, and totally random events that fuck with the plot make me nervous.
2: I can feel that. I will say one of my caveats with the wild sorcerer seems, because I like to tend to tell cohesive stories about a collective group of characters and really examine their arcs, is... Maybe you should start around level 3 if you're going to play a wild sorcerer. That way you don't accidentally, casually TPK someone when you summon a fireball on top of you. Right.
0: Right. And that's why I really like what Pathfinder did with the sorcerer. They still work exactly like they did in 3.5, where you had a select number of spells known, but a lot of spell slots. Uh, But you would choose a lineage. And they were not limited to Draconic and Wild. There were lists and lists and lists. And your lineage would give you your flavor. It would give you bonus spells, bonus feats, and a few random powers or odd class abilities. So if you picked a Draconic mate, draconic sorcerer, you would get some sort of uh, breath weapon and you would get some of the scales in defense, right? Because that's always there. Uh, but if you picked chaos as your lineage, you would have some entropy powers, and you could screw around with some die rolls. Like, you know, once per day, you could roll to affect someone else's roll, weird things like that. And And the list was pretty big. You had some of the classic ones, demons, devils, celestials, uh, you could be influ- – your your sorcery powers could come from ele- the elements, or, or you could have a, a djinn lineage or giant lineage or, or just totally random things. So the flavor would be there, and the abilities you got from it were pretty minor, and they weren't very useful at high levels, but it was just a fun thing to do. They were very useful at low levels because some of them were, you know, a – three times a day, range, touch, 1d6, fire, you know? And and that balances out some of your more limited spell choices. Um So I think that was really fun because it let you pick a flavor and get a unique mechanical benefit of it. But that being said, uh I, I do agree, now that we've been talking about it a little bit more, that the mechanics of the 5th edition Sorcerer are sound. I just don't like them that's just my preference
1: fair enough
2: yeah i won't fault you for not liking
1: something there, there is no accounting for taste until they uh promote me to chief taste and style accountant um for the united states that would be really <laughs> really great style actuarialism is my minor
0: mm. there you go
1: so uh are there any systems or settings where uh sorcerers are really uh, a fundamental part of of the system or setting or environment So, how
2: conceptual do we want to get with what it means to be a sorcerer? Because you're about to hear me do some interesting, what might sound like backpedaling on all that shit I just said about draconic sorcerers.
1: Perfect.
0: I love it. Bring it.
2: If you look at what it means to be a sorcerer as the passage of power through a sort of line or lineage, particularly one that's passed through by blood, then one of my favorite kinds of the exalted, in Exalted, the dragon-blooded, literally, they have been blessed way, way, way down the line by the touch of the greater elemental dragons, uh, of the five elements, and that causes them to manifest various elemental powers, usually around adolescence when they're all stormy and angsty, So it really captures a lot of the raw elementalism, and the draconic elements actually aren't particularly strong.
1: Well, they're not particularly strong, but when you get one practitioner from each of the five schools together, they can summon Captain Planet, and -hmm. then it's really good,
2: right? Yes, well, that's the fun thing about the Dragonblooded, is they are the weakest of all of the Exalted, but they work the best together. So they form sworn brotherhoods. There's very much a sort of Captain Planet-esque thing going on with the dragon-blooded.
1: That is so fantastic.
2: And I love it. So, I said all that terrible stuff about the Draconic Sorcerers, but these have a very, very interesting, unique, defined niche.
1: Voltron-like mechanic, where individually they're <laughs> nothing but together. Right, Some but they're sort. also
2: very, very built into the culture of creation. They have these elaborate huh? dynasties that they establish because... They're more powerful than 99% of the population, even though they're the weakest of the exalted. Right now, they've got the empire that basically runs the world, and they're spreading a religion that basically says that they are as close as you get to, like, a living god or a bodhisattva. So it's about family, and it's about power, and it's about obligation and privilege and imperialism, and I love that.
1: All all these are things I love. Yeah, they're nothing like some good old-fashioned imperialism.
2: Yeah, it allows you to really examine some interesting stuff, and it's through this lens of you've got this inherited power that's being passed down, and yeah, it's passed down through dragons.
0: But correct me if I'm wrong here, Quinn. In Exalted, the concept of dragons is not quite the same as the dragons in Dungeons & Dragons.
2: That is correct,
0: even though we're using the term the dragons, it's not like there's a red dragon flying around terrorizing the countryside. Like, indeed.
2: Right. So, dragons are very, very rare. Um, They haven't explicitly defined the um, metaphysical hierarchy of dragons in 3rd edition like they had with 1st and 2nd, but dragons tend to be powerful elementals or gods, and once an elemental basically becomes so powerful the most efficient form for it to take is the form of some sort of dragon. And it tends to be Eastern-style dragons. They tend to be serpentine, and there's also some high-level gods that are dragons. And these most powerful representations of the base elements that tie the world of creation together are the greater elemental dragons, and there's only five of them. So dragons are very, very rare in Exalted And they occupy a very, very different sort of niche within the setting where they are these sort of wise, mystical creatures who tend to be unscrutable and kind of fickle. As opposed to your more standard D&D, it pulls a lot more from Eastern mythology there.
0: So if I could hazard a guess here, I would think from this conversation that the dragon lineage concept in Exalted is more appealing to you because it is much more important to the story, and those dragons are much more rare, and there's a stronger tie to cultural and family strengths.
2: Yes. it's You're deciding by playing a dragon-blooded that you're making very, very big statements about who your character mm-hmm. is and what is important to them, and thematically what should be unpacked because if you're not a part of the dynasty then the fact that you exist outside of it like did you just awaken your essence like generations away from any other dragon blooded in your line or are you from like some offshoot cluster but the whole thing is very much tied into the setting and the metaphysics and it comes with all of this attendant tonal and thematic baggage that i think is really really wonderful and evocative
0: And the big difference being that in D&D, where theoretically dragons are just wandering around, they're part of everyday life, being tied to one of these dragons is much more commonplace. Having dragon blood could just be virtue of what some dragon decided to do way back when and where certain genitalia were placed. It could mean nothing. It's not important. It's very. It could be common. Anyone could be a sorcerer with dragon blood. Anyone could have that lineage. Whereas in the world of Exalted, choosing that lineage or having that choice made for you has such a huge impact on the game itself. Exactly. So, uh, so what about you, Scott? As we've been chit-chatting here, what are your thoughts?
1: Um, I. I think I I can't come up with, off the top of my head with with a specific um genre example of a, uh, a place or a film where everybody played sorcerers I mean uh maybe but but uh, they're they're kind of hackneyed so so I I think I will just uh, go ahead and wrap up and conclude uh, my thoughts on the Sorcerer. just that I think it's it's a great fun class I think uh, you can do a lot with it and uh don't be afraid to enjoy Arcane Lock
0: I mean, I love the Sorcerer. I think it's a fun class. I I might not like it in some iterations, but it's cool. I, I think it's a fun thing to do. I think just saying the word Sorcerer brings up a very specific connotation of what that class does. Maybe a little bit uncontrolled, maybe a little bit unrefined. Uh, it lets you be a little bit more brash instead of, thinking and planning. Uh, the wizard and the sorcerer, in my mind always go together. Uh, the wizard is is planned. the wizard studies. the wizard prepares. the sorcerer just rushes in and does things. They both use the same power source. They're both accessing similar, if not exactly the same arcane magics. but they the virtue of the difference is how they react to things. The sorcerer just says, all right, let's go and the wizard says, hold on, what's happening? And I think that's what I like the best, because I, I like just rushing into things in a game and getting stuff done.
2: <laughs> I think that I can feel that, and I think that I like that too. I kind of do like the theoretical opposition or dichotomy that you have between the wizard and the sorcerer. It's also interesting if you then introduce like the warlock sort of into that triumvirate, and what then does that mean, where you have power that awakens, power that is earned, and then power that is bargained for?
0: Yeah, it's 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 a good three-legged stool. Definitely. Okay, so there we go. That's the Sorcerer. Uh, we were pretty divided about our perceptions here. If you listeners out there have your own thoughts and opinions, if you want to tell me how wrong I am, because obviously... Uh Quinn and Scott are right, and it's it's all on me. I'll I'll bear that burden. Uh go ahead and leave us some comments, write on in, uh share your thoughts. We didn't touch on the fourth edition sorcerer very much, so if you have some stories or fond memories there, let us know. Uh if you have any great examples of sorcerers in other games, other concepts, uh really in class review, more often than not, we, we talk about these classes, how their concepts can be found in other games. Games. So if you have any great examples uh, mechanically, thematically, conceptually, go ahead and let us know. So with all that being said, I think it is safe to wrap up this episode of Detention for uh, Quinn, Scott, Michael, everyone here at the RPG Academy Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
2: And now I press stop on the record.
1: Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast, the flagship program of the RPG Academy network. If you enjoy what we do here,